All right, if you guys could turn to the book of Jude, we're going to be going through verses 17 through 23. Again, that's the book of Jude. It's right before Revelation. So if you flip to the end and then just go back a few pages, you'll get there quickly. All right, verse 17 down to 23. So Jude writes to the church, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were, were saying to you, in the last times, there will be mockers who follow after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions. They are worldly-minded and devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that we are able to gather here today and to hear the word preached. I pray that as we go through this uh, passage of scripture that you would awaken our hearts and embolden us to be able to be courageous for contending for the faith. That is, the truth handed down to us once and for all by the, uh, by the apostles I pray that you would allow us to have mercy on those who need to be treated with mercifulness and that we would simply embolden ourselves in the faithful uh, proclamation of the gospel and simple means by which we can be built up in our faith, which is through your scriptures, uh, through prayer, and through waiting for Christ's return. We thank you for this body. I thank you for this church. And I pray that your blessing would be upon Missio as they continue to walk in the faith, uh, that they would be able to put on the commands that Jude gives us here and be able to reflect more closely the image of Christ than they have in the past weeks. Again, we thank you for your scriptures. It is in your son's name we pray. Amen. So again, we are in Jude, uh, towards the end of it, verse 17 and following. Now, I preached on Jude a couple times before this. Now, obviously, I don't have the time to get into everything there, but if you'd like to go back on sermon audio, you can catch the first two sermons, which get into that in greater detail. Uh, what I want you to notice, though, is in, in this section, Jude turns his attention back to the church rather than the apostate. And he's continuing on in his main command that they contend for the faith. Now, if you remember, he started off this letter by saying, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, that is that blessed, amazing grace of God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. However, I was compelled, I was urged by the Spirit to write to you so that you contend for the faith. It's all the way back in verse 3. Now, if you also remember, the faith is kind of this bucket term, if you will, that includes everything that God has revealed about himself. And he's delivered to the saints once and for all. It's the total sum of all truth. And Jude calls the church to battle for this truth, to agonize over this truth. This has been the battle ever since the dawn of creation when Satan came into the garden and deceived Adam and Eve. Ever since that moment, since sin, deception, and death came into this world, all of humanity has been part of this battle. They are key players in that battle, whether or not they see that or like that. At the heart of what Christians contend against is truly demonic activity. The Apostle John said that these deceivers, these false teachers and apostates are literally speaking Satan and the Antichrist. 
They are his servants. They have been sent out into the church to do his work. They are not mere men, but actual vessels of Satan. Now, just as the Lord calls his people to be a chosen vessel and to do his work, so too does Satan. Just as God empowers genuine converts for the work of God and the work of the Great Commission, so too does Satan send out deceivers to deceive the masses. Now these men are commissioned and sent out as ambassadors of evil, proclaiming news that shall bring neither joy nor life. They are seeking to destroy people. It is in the midst of this, though, that Jude calls the church to battle against apostasy which simply defined as just a turning away from the faith. The truth is at stake, and as a result, people are being led astray. So the idea here in verses 17 through 23 is that Judah's actually going to tell them how they can contend for the faith. He's not setting up some vague criteria. He's setting specific commands up, several of them in fact. And what I want you to pay particular attention to is that Judah's not merely saying, you need to know what you believe. Now, that's undoubtedly part of it, but at the heart of all of this, his commands surround the idea that we actually put the truth into practice. We obey it. So look down at verse 17. We'll go ahead and get started in the text itself. Jude writes, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers, following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Now the first command is right here in verse 17. Remember the words spoken by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea here being more that we recall more than what they have said. It's not simply this mental assent to this knowledge. It's in the fact that it actually is dear to our hearts that this was foretold and we could have comfort in it simply because we know that God is in control. It's not a surface level agreement that they did in fact say in the last time there will be mockers who follow after their own ungodly lusts. No, again, it's this deeper resonating truth that causes our hearts to remember It was foretold, and the battle belongs to God. God is not shocked, then, at the arrival of apostates, nor were the apostles. And as such, we should not be surprised that they are in our midst either. Now, if you've listened to any of these, if you've been here present or you've gone back and listened to them, Jude spends 12 verses showing how utterly rebellious and demonic these men are. He devotes another two verses here. And so that means out of 24 verses, including a greeting and telling them what he would rather be writing about, Jude spends more than half of his letter detailing just how nasty these false teachers are. 14 verses are devoted to describing these men and their end. 14 verses are building up this incredible tension in the text because they crept in unnoticed and this church missed it, despite the warnings. These men came with violent intent. They wanted to bring the members of this church to hell. They wanted to mislead them. They came in to indulge in all sorts of gross immoralities 
They want to tear them apart. They wanted to break their fellowship and destroy the love they have for one another and leave them, if they can, as a dead church. Now, the same thing is true today. The same exact thing. I could stand up here and warn you time after time, and your pastors could warn you time after time that wolves come into the church. And your immediate reaction is to think, not here. Not at Missio, right? It's a well-taught church when we know that, and that's a good thing. But nonetheless, wolves still come. We shouldn't be surprised or doubt that they will come. That's precisely why we need to act now, though. We don't wait for it to happen. We don't become reactionary Christians. We don't forget what the apostles warned us of and then flip out when they are in our midst. We actually prepare beforehand for their coming. We take the warning seriously and pay close attention to what Jude is about to tell us here in the text. Now, I'm actually talking about actively pursuing what it looks like to contend for the faith. Again, we always think of it as this reactionary thing where a false teacher comes in and then they spout off their bad teaching and you correct it. But that's not what Jude's getting at here. Let this sink into your mind and your heart. Remember what the apostles foretold. Men will come into the church as savage wolves and they will not spare the flock. Remember that. If you can, wrap your minds around the idea that this world is simply not safe. Our adversary has literally sent out his servants to bring you harm. He has sent out wolves to break our fellowship and destroy our love for one another. Satan has commissioned false teachers to enter into the church at large and lure the people of God into all sorts of immorality and unbelief. He has sent out vile imposters to bring people to hell. It's that serious. But in knowing that, also know, and I mean really hold on to this fact, God is in control. So Jude gives three simple things to look out for. Number one, they are the ones who are causing divisions. They spoil the unity of the body. They undermine the authority of those whom God has appointed to care for the flock. Number two, they are worldly-minded, or better translated as naturally-minded. And Jude's not addressing what they do here by calling them worldly. He's speaking to who they are, what it actually makes up their being. He's telling them what kind of people they are. They are worldly, and therefore everything that exudes from them or comes from them is simply reflecting of that carnality or that worldliness. They lack the ability to discern spiritual things and know spiritual things simply because they are of this world. And number three, he says they are devoid of the Spirit. What he means simply by this is that they are not genuine believers. They profess the Christian faith, Remember, if you were here before for the last sermon, they even designate themselves as these super spiritual Christians. They claim to have their dreams and visions. They claim to have a direct communication with God, but they do not even possess the Spirit of God. 
And this is really at the heart of everything we covered the last time in verses 5 through 16. Remember, these apostates reject authority. They slander angelic majesties. They engage in all sorts of gross immorality, and they do not submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They are carnal and ruled by their brute animalistic instincts. They do not even love the brethren, but instead they do every single thing for selfish gain. What's more than this is that they give the appearance of purpose and godliness, right? But the only reason they do it is to hide under the surface so they can capsize people and watch them drown. They're hidden reefs in your love feasts, is what he said. So everything they do is just defined by sacrilege and rebellion, and all of it is with the intent to pull people from the faith. Now Jude is writing to this group of people, just trying to show them what these men are doing and how utterly wicked and ungodly they are. Look, they caused divisions by rejecting the teaching and the authority of the apostles who were commissioned by Christ himself. They are worldly. They have no concern with the things of God. They do not possess the Spirit of God. They are not even believers, and the proof is evident. All you have to do is look at what they do. All you have to do is look at what they teach. Look at their lives. It's all contrary to the faith. And yet they claim to represent that faith. But this is why you and I must battle. We can't let it continue. We have to stand up and contend for the faith. And so here's what you need to do. First, again, he says, remember that these men would come. It's all throughout the scriptures, that warning, but don't forget it. And don't forget the fact that God is in control of it. He is not shocked by this. The apostles were not shocked by this. In fact, they designated these things to happen for preparing us. And they taught us of this so that we would be prepared. If we can get that into our minds and accept it, we can contend. But it also will allow us to be comforted by that fact. Not the fact that these men are in and they're ravaged wolves, but the fact that it was not unforeseen and the outcome has been decided. However, now is the time for action for the church. You need to gird up your loins and battle. And so knowing that apostates will come into the church, in verses 20 through 23, he tells us what we are to do. But let's focus on 20 and 21 first. So Jude writes, but you, and again, he switches his focus back to the church from the apostate, and it's a strong contrast, so as to say, do the exact opposite thing of these men. It says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now the command here, the second thing Jude actually tells them to do in order to contend for the faith is that they keep themselves in the love of God. He recognizes it's not enough for them simply to contend or oppose these false teachers in their doctrine. Now Christians cannot be fully devoted to the faith if all they do is spend their time focusing on how they can disarm 
the doctrine of a false teacher. So Jude commands them, pay special attention to your own spiritual well-being. It's profoundly moral. In essence, he's saying that you and I have to order our entire being, our entire life around God. We don't just have the facts about the gospel. We don't just claim a belief in those facts. We actually rise to the point where our hearts and minds are convinced that this is true, and we must order our lives around that. We believe the gospel in such a manner that it reflects in a life of obedience to Jesus Christ. You keep yourself in the love of God. Now, what does he mean by that phrase? To keep yourself in the love of God. Now, remember, earlier in the letter, Jude calls these people the called. He's talking to those who are beloved of the Father and kept secure for Jesus Christ. He's not questioning their salvation. He's not saying, do X, Y, and Z. Do these things to keep yourself saved. He's saying, you and I are to remain in the place where we experience God's love being poured out through Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross. In other words, you continue in Christ and trust in his work by faith. You rest in the fact that God has accomplished and applied your redemption and that he will, through the work of the Spirit and the Word, sanctify you in all truth. But also know that the way this works itself in the believer's life is in and through obedience. God's promise does not ever, and I mean ever, nullify a believer's responsibility to obey. We are commanded to live in a manner that pleases God. We are commanded to flee from all immorality and then put on positive commands, right? So in that sense, you are to maintain your love of God by actually doing something. You're to be found obedient to the scriptures. Now it goes even further by this thought, though. The idea is that you jealously guard the faith that has been given to you by persisting in obedience. In other words, you persevere all the way to the end, and the place you do this in is the love of God. But notice Jude says we are to keep ourselves. He uses a reflexive pronoun here. And all he means by that is that we are to guard each other. We don't just focus upon ourselves. You look to everyone around you, and I mean in this room right here and now, and you have to guard them as well in the faith. You guard yourself, but you also guard your brother and sister. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We were made for community, and one of the simple reasons why is that we can actually protect one another. And so you ask the question then, okay, how do we actually do that? Well, Jude tells us right here. He gives them three participles, three different ways they are to remain in the love of God. And the first one is that you can keep yourself in the love of God by building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Now remember the idea of the faith. It's this objective foundational truth delivered once and for all to the saints. It's not your individual faith that Jude is focusing on here. The idea is that you will hold on in or you will continue on in the faith. You will persevere and continue to fight the good fight and finish the race. He's telling them, build yourselves up on this. 
Edify yourselves up on the foundation laid by those who have walked before you. And so you're not pursuing new and novel ideas, which are just old heresies already condemned by the church. You continue to hold the Bible in a high regard, as it is the sole measure by which we understand everything else. It is, to use an old Latin term, the norma normans non normata, which just simply means it is the norm that norms which cannot be normed. Doesn't make any more sense, does it? In clear speech, Scripture is the final authority, and it is the rule by which we measure everything else. Even when you don't like where that logic takes you. You and I do not get to impose what we want to on the text. The Bible gets to impose on our own faulty thinking. The Bible gets to bring us into submission to it rather than the other way around. We must allow the text to speak for itself rather than make it say what we want it to say. And if we're brutally honest, we're pretty darn good at that, aren't we? But it means that ultimately, the scriptures are the final authority that we use to develop a worldview and come to understand our culture. It's not the other way around. It never is. The scriptures determine morality and ethics. What is to be called good and what is to be practiced and sanctioned. The scriptures determine what is sinful and not. And beloved, it makes no apologies doing any of these things. The scriptures bring all ideologies and worldviews and thought processes under submission to God's own thoughts. And most importantly, the scriptures determine who God is and how he is to be worshipped. Now the Bible is concerned with this faith, the faith, this objective reality, this total sum truth of God given to the saints once and for all. This is why Jude calls it your most holy faith. It comes from God. He has not left us in the dark. He has given everything we need to know pertaining to life and godliness. Now, one of the practices I put into my own home a long time ago was to simply ask the question, what is my biblical basis for this? Now, you could ask my wife how annoying that question can be for certain things. However, you can also ask her how it's trained her to think biblically and to think in biblical principles. You're going to have three basic categories that really falls into. Is it against what the Bible teaches? Is it wise? And will it honor God? Three categories, that's really it. And what that's going to force you to do is look back into the text and see and ask yourself, is what I'm choosing actually aligned with what God desires? Is my life mastered and defined by the book? And really the reason behind this is that we are always doing theology. You might not think of it that way, but whatever you do and think always ties into what you believe about God and the Bible. Always. Everyone in this room is a theologian. Now, some of us might not be good theologians. So we have to ask the question, how then do we become a good theologian? 
Well, you're going to have to grow in your understanding of the gospel and of doctrine itself. And you have to embrace the fact that it's going to be hard work. It's going to take over a part of your life, and it will demand that part of your life, and it will interfere with your desire to do other things, even good things. Now, the more you start to go down that road and ask these questions of yourself, the more you're going to recognize a decision you made that it's even good is really taking you away from being able to do something of infinitely greater value. Knowing the Bible and applying it takes work, time, humility, and a ton of sacrifice. Growth in knowing God is not tied to something mystical. It's not tied to something experiential. But it is rooted in an objective historical reality we call the faith. Or in today's terms, Christianity. So believers can remain in this love of God as they grow in their understanding of God's word and submit themselves to it. You don't need to know every heresy out there to combat it. You don't need to know the difference between systematic and biblical theology. You just need to know what the Bible teaches. And beloved, we're not in a vacuum. It's not just you and your Bible on a deserted island or in solitary. It's not the sixth doctrine of the Reformation, right? Not really one. Solo scriptura. It's not that. We literally have thousands of years of faithful men and women building upon the foundation laid by Christ. Learn from them. And better yet, grab one or two people in this room or in this church and learn together. Not peers, but people who can help you see the truth in a better light and help you to put it into practice so that you're found obedient to that truth. Take advantage of the ordinary gifts that God has given the church, and that's teachers, that's disciples, that's other Christians who have walked further in the faith and they are more mature in their own walk. And you can look at them and say, I actually want to imitate them. Well, the biggest mistake you and I can make is to simply reject the counsel of a wiser Christian. They can help you not only solidify a good foundation in the faith, but give you an understanding that helps change your heart and mind to love that truth. Now, none of us can mature in the faith without the encouragement, advice, and the admonition of fellow believers. So find another Christian who is more mature than you, And just humbly submit yourself to them. Be a fat Christian. Be a faithful, available, and teachable Christian. But know that even this is not enough. Now the idea Jude brings to our minds is that we not simply take and experience the blessing of those who can help us. We are to build each other up, all of us. Not only do we need to find that true friend who is willing to show us our inconsistency in both thought and deed, but we need to be mature enough to be able to do that with somebody else. It becomes then a collective effort on our our parts to build up the entire body that is Missio Dei Fellowship. And so we don't just come in here on a Sunday morning, sing some songs, learn some truth, talk about it in our small groups, and then go away the rest of the week and tune out to Netflix. That's not good enough. We need to be far more concerned 
with the well-being and maturity of our brothers and sisters than anything else. It takes priority over your career, your hobbies, your leisure, your interests, over anything. If I could get you to see one thing out of this, it's that the idea goes way beyond simply knowing the truth of the Bible. It's that you and I become faithful to obey the commands of Scripture. And then we teach others to do the same thing. That's born out of the Great Commission. Now the plain reason why is that if we don't, this world and the enemies of the gospel will eat us alive. We must know the word and apply it. We must recognize that the way the Bible presents a true knowledge of God and his word is that it will change us. It changes not only the way we think about things, but what we do. Our lives will be shaped by it. Our hearts conditioned to praise. Our actions will conform to that truth. And so realize, Jude is not looking at the contents of this faith, the faith, as simply this doctrinal component you square away in your life and do all sorts of debauchery. It encompasses every aspect of the Christian life. It is equally concerned with right doctrine as it is with right practice or obedience to that doctrine. And it's equally concerned that we do this together as a body. So what that means is we must resist our flesh and battle against the temptation to sin because our sins hamper the unity and the edification of this body. Quite frankly, we cannot be those who are ruled by our instincts. We are not men and women given to stealing, but instead we work so that we might do what? Exactly. Give to the poor. Give to those in need. We are not to be drunkards, but filled with what? The Spirit. We are not to lie, but to tell the truth. And we do all of these things so that we might minister and build each other up. Now in all of this, our flesh will continue to try and pull us back to that old way of living. But a heart and mind built upon the foundation of the faith stands strong. A person who knows and loves the truth of God's word will, and I mean will, put it into practice. It is not simply an exercise of thinking rightly. Again, it's an exercise of obeying rightly. And we do all of it to the edification of the body. Beloved, it is not about you. It's about the bride of Christ. It's about his church. We all must partake in discernment. Be not, able, not only able to spot bad doctrine and false teachers, but discern how we can mutually build each other up in the faith so that we might all be holy before him. The second way you keep yourself in the love of God, then, is by praying in the Spirit. And again, this isn't some mystical or experiential practice. Judith's not talking about some secret prayer language or that you're going away in a closet and praying in tongues here. He's simply talking about being a person given to prayer. We go to God with all things, the big and the small. We trust that He is the sovereign one who hears our prayers and accepts them through His Son. 
We believe that even when we lack the proper words to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us. So there's this general disposition, again, this general heart attitude where we find ourselves given to prayer. We pray not only for ourselves, but the same body we are part of and the collective body of Christ all around the globe. We lift each other up before the throne of God and intercede on each other's behalf. Not simply because we're commanded to, because, but because we know that somehow in the grand mystery of prayer and God's sovereign, unchanging plan, He is pleased to carry out His will through the prayers of the saints. But the whole idea is that we are praying in the Spirit or in the realm of the Spirit. Now what this means plainly is that we pray in a way that is consistent with the will of God. We pray in a way that is consistent with how the Spirit prays for us. The Spirit knows the mind of God. He intercedes on our behalf. And it is always in perfect harmony with the will of the Father. And so while at times we might groan because we can't even form proper words, the Spirit takes those groanings and literally transforms them into prayers that are consistent with the will of God. The idea then is that even in prayer, we are built up in our most holy faith. Again, that true foundation of right belief and practice. And so we pray accordingly. It goes directly back to the Word of God, where we can seal, see what God's revealed will is. And secondly, it brings us back to the Word of God, where we can see that we don't always know what God has ordained. We can't know it. And so we have to entrust ourselves to Him in the unknown. All of this, and I mean all of it, is just shaped by a heart, primed by the Word of God, that then flows from our lips to God. It doesn't mean we can't pray for things like help fit in our car keys. We've all done it, right? But that's not a bad prayer. At the heart of prayer is a soul who relies on God for all things, the big and the small. And at the heart of prayer is a soul that desires what he desires of us in all things. And so it's a complete reliance on our merciful Father who can help us in our time of need, but it's also a heart that desires the things that He desires of us, which is being built up in our faith. As one commentator put it, believers cannot keep themselves in the love of God without depending on Him through prayer. Love for God cannot be sustained without a relationship with Him, and such a relationship is nurtured by prayer. And then the third and final way you keep yourselves in the love of God is by waiting anxiously for the day of Christ's return. Now this is obviously speaking to that final great day. Judah is looking at the end of all days, and so we are to wait with eager anticipation for Christ's return, even though we may not see it. We wait with hope because He, that is Christ, is the author and finisher of our faith, and His return comes with the promise of eternal life. That's the mercy of our Lord here, Jude refers to. It's Christ's return to usher us into eternal life in His presence. 
And so the idea is that we persevere. We do not lose hope. And so we must remain in his love until the end. We must finish well. We must endure through various trials, knowing that the result is that we will be crowned with glory. Now, when one takes their eyes off of that hope, their love for God diminishes because the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of riches pulls them away. The one who does not endure simply shows his love was for this present evil age rather than the age to come. If we're honest, we don't really think about his return. Not as much as we should. I know that I don't. I want to see my daughters grow up into beautiful young women. And I want to see grandchildren. I want to see my son grow into be a strong and courageous man of God and to lead his household with honor and integrity. And these aren't bad things, but they remind me of how easily I can hold on to this life. If I'm brutally honest, the thought of not being able to see my children live to an older age and to produce grandchildren and to be fearless men and women of God brings me sadness. And yet I know in my heart that to die and to be with Christ is infinitely better. We get so wrapped up in our own world that at the end of the day, we come home, we kick off the shoes, we play with the kids, we eat dinner, put everyone to bed, and then go to bed ourselves, all without even thinking of Christ. We can do that without even contemplating the significance of his return and the beauty of it. Sin will be utterly done away with. Satan will be no more. We will be in the presence of the very God of all creation for eternity. And we ought to be anxious that it's literally filled with a great anticipation for that day. We ought to live our lives with an eagerness for his return and an eagerness to give an account for it. So that means we ought not get bogged down by this world or enticed away by what it has to offer. We don't turn to the left or to the right. We're not tossed about by every wind of doctrine, but we swim right down the middle of a sea of apostasy and fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ. We root ourselves upon the foundation of the faith. We are then steady and immovable because we haven't built our house upon the stand or upon the sand. We look toward the eternal because this world is not our home. It has nothing, and I repeat, absolutely nothing to give us. Do we believe that? It all circles back, again, to knowing the word and applying it. We live with ultimate reference to God, knowing that we will stand before him at the end of all days and to give an account for our life. Let me just ask, is it your desire to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant? And if it's not, I'm going to suggest that your priorities are way out of line.
This is how we keep ourselves in the love of God. We continue to grow in our knowledge and application of the word, meaning we obey it. We give ourselves to praying in harmony with the will of God and depending on him for all things in prayer. And then we wait with great anticipation for his return when he will usher us into eternal life. And then look down verse 22, the following two verses, last commands he gives us. Jude writes, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garments polluted by the flesh. Now this pertains by, to those who are influenced by the false teacher. Now pay particular attention. This is not our goal with the false teacher. In the beginning of the book, Jude makes it painfully clear that the only thing that awaits them is condemnation, everlasting anguish, because they rip apart the body of Christ. It's not bullying to look at these men and call them as they are. They are devourers. We don't look at them and seek to evangelize them. The pattern given by Jude is not that we go and seek to infiltrate their ranks and bring them the gospel. There is no hope for them. The only thing that awaits them, and I mean the only thing, is the blackest of darkness. And the reason for this is because, as John made it clear before, and as Jude makes it clear here, they are the very embodiment of Satan and the Antichrist in our midst. That's why we treat them harshly. They are the embodiment of our enemy. They've been sent out as Satan's servants, and they know exactly what they are doing. But our focus is more on those under the influence of these men. I also want you to notice, though, that Jude issues these commands after he clearly shows them how to keep themselves in the love of God. The idea, then, is not that those who are weak in the faith or undiscerning go and do this rescue work. It's not for your children who have just professed Christ to go to the front lines of the battle and be evangelists, if you will. The only thing that they're going to get is a bunch of people whispering lies into their ears. Your job is to be at the front lines. Remember when you were a child and just the amount of influence that your favorite teacher had on you. Remember the influence that some friends had on you or coworkers had on you. And for you young folks, pay attention to who you let into your life. Because in 10 years, guaranteed, most of them will not care one bit where you are. But parents, your children need to be built up. They're going to require time and teaching so you know they can swim. You don't just chuck them into the deep end and hope they can swim. They still need that strong foundation laid. They need to develop moral integrity. They need to develop the conviction to be able to say no when they are tempted to go the way of sinners. They need to be able to stand on their own two feet before they, you and I or anybody else even thinks they can go and do rescue work. You might be tempted to think that things are just simply different for you, but I can promise you they're not. You are not the exception to the rule, beloved. Your children aren't. Weak believers aren't the exception to the rule. We have to be built up. 
And if we don't build them up, expect that you and I are going to be the ones that have to go and rescue them, if we can. It's incredibly sobering. Now, if you are a new believer, if you are someone who's even been in the church for years and you're realizing at this moment maybe you're not even equipped to do this work, that's okay. Just be taught. And I don't mean from me. I'm saying sit under faithful teaching of wise Christians, older, wiser men and women. Get discipled by somebody. Continue to lay that foundation. Order your life around Christ through the simple spiritual disciplines of being in the scriptures and giving yourself to prayer. Develop a deeper love for Christ and learn to focus your mind on his return, waiting for that day when he comes. Now, don't think I'm saying you need to be an expert in any one of these things. That's not the case. Just lay that strong foundation and start to have integrity. If you're faithful in this, it will happen so much quicker than you will anticipate. Because God always blesses faithfulness. But also, keeping yourself in the love of God is an active thing. And that means it never stops. You continually grow in faithfulness. You continually grow in knowing and applying the truth of God's word. And we continually grow in prayer. You grow in holding out in the hope of Christ's return. There's never a point when you and I arrive this side of heaven. It's called perseverance, and it's called that because we have to continue on our whole life. Now, once you've found yourself to be keeping yourself in the love of God by just these simple matters, you persevering in faithfulness here, Jude gives three more commands. The first one is that you have mercy on some who are doubting. Now, simply put, we just don't have the luxury of tossing off the doubters to the side because we find them annoying or needy. Do you not realize that it is the very gift of God that you have not been given doubt and that you don't wrestle with it, or maybe not in the capacity that they do? Have mercy. He's given you that gift so you can go and have mercy on them. The idea is not that you affirm their doubts, but that you teach them. You guide them in the way of truth. You teach them in all patience and love because you know that Satan is literally prowling about as a lion seeking whom he may devour. Do you know that when a lion hunts, it never goes for the strong or the alert? It always picks off the weak. And so it's looking for the young, the old, the injured, or the ones that just simply have their guards down at that given moment. Now, they hunt in one of two ways. They will stalk their prey where they can't be seen, or they'll hide out in a bush or a tree. And it could take days until they attack, but they wait until that perfect moment and they strike. They are incredibly patient and good at what they do. When they strike, they immediately go for the jugular, and if they can't get that, they will actually position their mouths over the snout of the other animal and suffocate it. They adapt so they can get the kill. It's the same exact thing with Satan. He is incredibly good at what he does. He is incredibly patient. And when he strikes, it is to kill. 
And he will adapt to do that. So have mercy on the one who is weak. Guard them as you guard yourself. They are not people against the faith. They are those who have been influenced and taken captive by something maybe they heard on the radio or read in a book, saw on TV, or saw on the internet. Now think of all the ways that this influence can happen and doubts start to sink in. They start to be led astray. And all this is doing is setting up the time for when Satan can strike. Now he is incredibly patient and good at what he does. You who are strong are to have mercy on them. Don't push them away. Go and seek them out and then gently instruct them in the proper way. Number two, save others, snatching them out of the fire. In other words, they are to be rescued from the brink of eternal damnation. And this is where the work gets all the more difficult because they are beyond the stage of doubt. They have bought into the lie and they are already in the fire. They are not confused. They are not wavering. They actually believe it. They are in the place where the beliefs they hold have consigned them to hell. And Jude just says, rip them out of the fire. It's this violent word picture because there isn't any gentleness here anymore. They are already in the flames being burned up and they're sitting in the midst of the fire just saying, everything's okay. These are the people you just sternly rebuke and you call to repentance. You don't mince words, you don't play coy, but you plainly and lovingly tell them their beliefs and practices will land them squarely in hell because your aim is to snatch them out of the fire. Now, if you know anything about the tactics of first responders, you know that there's a time where they can do the emergency work right where they're at. It's safe to do so. The person's not in any immediate danger. But sometimes they need to get them out of harm's way and they need to do it now or else they'll die. In the midst of that, what can happen is they get hurt in, the, in that process. That's kind of the idea Jude's getting at here. They just need to be ripped or snatched completely out of the fire and then you can help them. And number three, have mercy on some with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. This is the last person who Jude says we are to rescue. This last group of people might seem like the false teacher, but remember earlier in the book, Jude says the false teacher's condemnation was already appointed before the foundations of the earth. So I don't think he has them in mind. They aren't the doubting. They're not the ones who are believing it. Rather, they're the ones who have aligned themselves with the false teacher. They are the ones who are convinced and committed to the false teacher. They approve them. Jude says we are still to have mercy on that person, but mixed with fear, meaning simply that just like the others, we don't write them off as if they are too far gone. We seek to preach the gospel to them, but with a keen awareness, and I mean a keen awareness, that we have the real potential to go down with them. What's more than this is that we are literally to despise even the garment defiled by the flesh. And that's a very graphic picture. What he's actually talking about here is that that garment, it's like an undergarment, so it'd be like your underwear. He's saying, think of it 
like the person has a pair of soiled underwear. Nobody wants to go near that. The very idea of even touching that is revolting. They are so defiled by their corruption that it literally seeps out of their skin onto their undergarments. But Jude just says, have mercy on them. We are still to try and rescue them if we can. Now, when I was was a lifeguard, I was taught that when you go to save a drowning victim, their immediate reaction is to lock their arms around you. And they hold on for dear life. So what you do is you bring them back where they don't want to go, which is under the water. It's the last place a drowning victim ever wants to be. At that point, you can push them off over the top of you. But sometimes they hold on for dear life. And sometimes they hold on for dear life around your neck. And so what do you think they taught us to do in that moment? You punch them. You do everything within your power to get them off of you. It's better for them to live with a broken nose than to die into the depths of the water. But at the same time, they also told us that if you can't get them off of you, and you can't go back and get them after you get them off of you, you let them die. You let them drown. And the reason for that is simply because it's better for one to die than for two to die. That's the exact same thing Jude is saying here. It is better for one to go to hell than for two to go to hell. The reality is that this work is incredibly dangerous. And we need to be aware of that fact. You need to recognize they can pull you back under the water if you're not careful. And if you're not careful enough, you'll actually die with them. Those who are doing the rescue work must, and I repeat, must have some measure of fear and hatred mixed with mercy. You should have a healthy fear of what could happen. And you should hate, and I mean despise, their defilement. We must not think for a moment we are immune to the things that defile them. But there comes a point where you must have a measure of self-preservation. You and I can't be caught up in the fact of rescuing them that we presume we won't be affected. There comes a point where they are to be left to their own devices. As Paul puts it elsewhere, they are to be handed over to Satan so they may be taught not to blaspheme. Guys, this is church discipline in a nutshell. This really is. If they repent, we are to welcome them with open arms into the full fellowship of our faith and engage them, but that's only if they repent. At a certain point, they must be cast out of the community so that the purity and the holiness of the church may survive. This is precisely why I say you don't throw a new believer into the fire. This is also why I've tried to build as much caution around this whole thing as I can. If you are not actively keeping yourself in the love of God, you are not going to be able to stand at the end of the day. You will not persevere. You'll be corrupted by their defilement. Now the painful reality is that when you and I try to snatch someone from the fire, we have the very real prospect of getting burned in the process. 
It's dangerous. But that doesn't give you a free pass from this command. So what do you have to do? Well, plainly speaking, you get yourself in a position to where you can actually obey it. This all falls under the umbrella of contending for the faith. You might be at a different spot in the battle. You might not be at the front lines holding the guard. But nonetheless, you and I must contend. We must be in the battle. And so you, you who are the strong, go out and do that rescue work. Rescue those on the brink of hell. And once they've been rescued, build them up. Your work is not done there. We need to be able to equip them so that they can stand. We need to build them up in our most holy faith. And so we teach them the scriptures. We teach them to read the scriptures so that when they look at the text, they can understand what it's saying. We teach them how to ask good questions and how to answer those questions from the text. We teach them to ask about words and to ask about phrases, to ask about the context, to ask about prepositions, so that when they get to this point, they don't get lost when they see the word because, or but, or in order that, or therefore, or as a result of. They can tie these things together. Show them how they can read and see what the author intended from a passage, and then show them how to connect the dots between that passage and the rest of Scripture. We show them then that it demands a response of the heart and of the will and of our affections. We teach them how to apply it to their lives. We teach them. We teach them to know the truth and not get tossed about by every new wind of doctrine. And if you can't do that, bring them to somebody who can. That's okay. But again, then sit yourself under their instruction so you can learn and obey these commands. That's okay. The idea is that we do this together as a body. So on the whole, Jude has given us three main things to focus on. The first one is that you pay attention to the prophecies the apostles made concerning the wolves. They will come. The second is that you do not neglect your own spiritual growth and well-being. You preserve your love for God by remaining in the source from which it flows, which is Christ. And then number three, you show mercy to those influenced by the false teacher, but jealously guard your own soul in the midst of that. Look, I need you guys to really take this seriously. If we can't get it into our minds that wolves are in the church, then we won't stand. And it's not without warning. You and I will never have an excuse to say that we didn't know they were coming, that we didn't know they would be in our midst. We will never be able to excuse our lack of watchfulness and vigilance. If you don't take that seriously, you're not going to take any of the rest of this seriously. If you don't build upon the foundation we have laid by Christ and the apostles and 2,000 years of church history of faithful men and women 
Beloved, you will not stand. You certainly will not be on solid foundation when they strike. You'll buy into all sorts of stupid philosophies and empty teachings, and I mean stupid and empty, that will carry the souls of your wife and your children and your friends, your relatives, and eventually even yourself into hell. If Paul told Timothy to guard his life and his doctrine, for by that he would save himself and his hearers, none of us can think that this does not apply It's not a light matter. If you look at the broader evangelical church as a whole, there are many who have been in the church for years and think they've got it all together. We will never get to that point. That's what the Christian life is. It's just that faithful plodding, one foot in front of the other, until the day we die. We cannot get to the place where we think these words do not apply Now, Lord willing, I'll be preaching to you next week as well. We'll be finishing out the book, and we're going to cover the last two verses. But I don't want to leave you with what just seems like an impossible task. If you understood this rightly today, if I preached it rightly, it's a bit scary, to be honest. It's terrifying, and it should be. There's a very real and present danger in all of this. It's dangerous, but we are nonetheless commanded to go forth and do this. But we need to be able to look at the whole thing properly. We can't look at all of this without looking at the doxology in the final two verses. And Lord willing, I'll be able to tie all of that together with this next week. But let's look at it briefly now. Verses 24 and 25. Jude writes, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So Jude makes this work, or makes how incredibly dangerous this work very clear for us. But he nonetheless reminds us in the beginning and now again at the end that God is in full control. Christ will keep us until the end and present us before the Father without fault and with great joy. And this is ultimately our motivation to contend. We look forward to that because what a great day will that be. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for this passage. Jude is an incredibly hard book to read and to sit under its teaching. And I pray that uh, through conviction that your spirit would work and align our thoughts and minds and wills to follow after what Jude would have of us. That you'd make us a people who are strong, built upon the foundation laid by Christ and his apostles. That we would walk worthily of the calling by which you have called us, which is the gospel. And that we would be found standing at the last day 
that we would persevere all the way to the end. In the midst of that, being known as a people who do rescue work, rescuing souls from the very brink of hell and destruction. May we look with great introspection to see where we fall short and then press forward, simply trusting in the work that Christ has done to forgive us on the cross and that by rising on the third day that he defeated death and Satan and sin. And while we live in this tension where we've already realized this, but we have not yet inherited all these things, the end of all these things, we pray that you would strengthen us all the more so that at that final day, we would see you face to face and be in your presence forevermore. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.